You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 95. You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures mate for life. But isn't that, like, cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast, dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. All right, folks. So today we're talking with Cassie Brighter, uh, not to be confused with our host, Cassie. Cassie is a writer, public speaker, educator, and group facilitator who focuses on gender diversity, consent culture, and sex positive and body positive inclusivity. Uh, her main focus is a core group of lectures around gender diversity and inclusivity in community events. And she's also given lectures on consent culture, especially as it relates to sexuality, dating, and relationships. She also creates growth-inspiring events that lift up the voices of other public speakers and educators with a deliberate focus on social change. Today, we're going to be talking about a number of things, mainly around trans issues. Uh, we're going to be talking about Cassie's story some. We're going to talk about body and gender dysphoria, the first step that someone can take to start feeling more like their authentic selves when maybe they're not. Uh, we're going to be talking about transitioning. We're talking about a lot of myths, some around transitioning, some not. We're going to be talking about coming out to different people, family, children, and a lot more. Uh, Cassie's socials are at the end of the podcast and, of course, in the show notes at atouchofflavor.com forward slash 095. And without further ado, let's hop in and we bring you Cassie Brighter. Why don't we dive in a little bit and learn a little bit about, you know, like your story and then we'll kind of go from there into talking about because we get a lot of listeners who are trans folk and we have lots of other people who are family and friends and want to be supportive. And I think sometimes it's really helpful just to hear the story of someone else. And then we can kind of move into talking about some of the the issues and myths and things like that. People often ask me, uh, when did I know that I'm trans? I'm surprised at how difficult that answer is and how complicated that answer is. The short answer is this came as a staggering blow at five o'clock in the morning on a Sunday when I was uh, in my, maybe about 10 years ago, in my 40s. My brother had died recently and I was really kind of agonizing over, I don't know, the meaning of life, my own mortality. Um, The one thing that I was stumbling with the most is the fact that I hadn't, I I didn't feel like I had lived I didn't feel like I was legit, legitimately engaging with life. I felt like I was just phoning it in and uh, wasn't really living. And here I'm confronted with the fact that I could actually go any minute. And it was, it was an agonizing kind of a chase inside of my head of trying to figure this out. I really wasn't thinking about gender at all. And then, um, like, how can I be more authentic? How can I have a, an actual life instead of pretending to have a life? Mm. And as I was sitting there just agonizing over this question, then it suddenly kind of hit me like a Mack truck, and it was an extremely uncomfortable realization. And it wasn't really a conversation. It wasn't two voices. I don't have DID. But <laughs> what I'm saying, it, it felt 
like a, an argument with myself because the thing that I, my brain fed me is, oh, okay, so you want to talk about being authentic? Let's talk about the five bras in your drawers. Let's talk about the lipstick. Let's talk about um, how much you uh, were jealous of your sister when you were growing up. How it, let's talk about your feelings of grief over not being able to be pregnant when you witnessed your spouse's pregnancy. And it was a harrowing kind of a moment because it was something I had been trying to chase away for, for decades. And um, I, I lay there shaking, shaking on my bed and I arrived at basically the decision of like, okay, fine, I'm going to own it. I'm going to admit to myself that I'm transgender. But also, I sure as hell, I'm going to take it to my grave and I'm never going to tell anybody. That didn't last. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like, so there's been some change from there. Um, you know, so that, that's a big shift, right? Like you start off in this place of I'm, I'm, I've figured all this out. I'm not going to talk to anybody about any of this stuff. I'm not going to, you know, what, what started to kind of shift for you? What was the, the, the pieces that kind of made that, uh, start going in a different direction? I became more and more aware of how deeply unhappy I was. I was trying to tell myself that See, the situation is tenable, the situation is sustainable, but I realized more and more that it wasn't. Um, but I'm going to take one parenthesis here. I'm going to say that the, the, the one answer is this happened in my 40s. This is when I knew. But the reality of it is I knew all through my 30s. My spouse knew. I knew at 27. I knew at 19. I knew at 17. At 17, I wrote it in a journal. Um, I knew at nine years old, um, but it's amazing how I'm being able to compartmentalize and deny and push it away and justify it as a fetish and try to do everything in my power to cancel and subdue this thing. Um, and it kept bubbling up. Um, but so this time I was just confronted with it and I had to look at it straight on. Something that really, and so now I'm, I'm picking up again from the question that you just asked me, something that really hit me hard was the fact that as I was dealing with the grief over the death of my brother, who died very young, he died at 44, and I was 42 at the time. The, obviously, the feelings of grief, the feelings of loss, the feeling, you know, he was a very important reference point in my life, but there was something else that was weird, which is I was really mad at him. I was um, bitter. And when I tried to identify what that was, what came to my mind is the fact that he had taken the death card of the table. I was going to be the one to check out. He, wasn't, he was going to outlive us all. And now that he's checked out, I can't very well vanish. Because how many deaths in one family can you have politely, right? And that really threw me because I'm thinking, well... I mean, I'm not going to do something stupid. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a strong person. I'm not. Suicide is for chumps. Um, as I, I tried to do in, introspection and really kind of puzzle these things out. And so the, the thought comes, and I'm sorry, this is a little bit of a downer in this segment, but I started thinking about it and I'm like, all right, so let's, let's say I'm fine. Um, how come I have a $400,000 life insurance? Uh, how come I know exactly how I would divide up between the kids? How come I know exactly that there's seven months and two weeks before the suicide clause expires? How come I have a, an actual 
pretty good Thelma and Louise plan in my head. And I started getting worried. I started seriously thinking about whether um, leaving six figures in cash to one of my kids would be enough to, for them not to be bitter about me abandoning them. And when you start thinking like that, you really kind of reassess your life. And did you find, like, when you were thinking that, was it, was the driving behind that, like, that you hadn't really been who you were up to that point? Yeah, quite frankly, it's a lot of work to pretend to be somebody that you're not. It, it's a lot of work to do it without any joy. Um, I created this pretty good persona. And if you had seen me from the outside 10 years ago, you probably wouldn't have had any much of an idea that I'm queer, uh, let alone that I'm a woman. You would have... Um, probably identified me as, you know, a husband, a father, um, a corporate 401k, um, driving to work and picking up the kids on the way back kind of a person and, and, you know, kind of textbook life, suburban life. And I had worked really hard at creating that persona. It was exhausting and I wasn't getting much joy out of it. So we had had many conversations with my spouse at the time about the fact that come the weekend, I didn't really feel like getting out of bed. And now I, you know, this was post-divorce and I really, there was a sentence that was running through my head at the time and I don't know where I picked it up from, but I was beholden to none. I had already done and been done with the religion thing. I had already um, brought three children to the world so the grandparents should be content. And I had already had a um, decade-long marriage and I had gotten divorced. And at this point of my life, um, I guess I'm free to go. I guess I could do whatever the hell I wanted. And it was that realization that started me thinking, wait a minute, I could actually now build the life that I want to live. And kind of a terrifying prospect if you, if you think about it, like, oh, I am in charge of my destiny. That is a lot. <laughs> um, I, I once heard someone say, you know, that opportunity equals terrifying right so you can always uh you can always get yourself in a situation where you're like i have this opportunity in front of me but also on the other side of that is is terrifying because the things that are not terrifying are the things that are common it's the things that we experience every day um it's what we get used to and when we have to step out of that normal flow that's when uh that's when things get a little scary Exactly. And um, I tend to speak pretty candidly about sexuality and I, I don't know exactly um, how uh, candid I should be on the show, but... Um, I like to eat pussy and it's amazing. That's about how candid you have to be. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, think, uh, I think our second podcast episode was named Cassie Face Fucks a Mermaid. So if that gives you an idea, uh, I, think, I think you're on the right track. I really love that. Okay. So, um, my, my immediate decision point, once I realized that I was in charge of my own destiny is I'm going to get laid a lot and I'm going to sleep with a lot of men. Um, because that's something I've been suppressing since I was 17. Um, and so I found this little dating site called Craigslist. <laughs> Not the best place. <laughs> well, Depends. I know some people who've had we we so back when we tried to use Craigslist, we met a lot of very interesting people. <laughs> but I know some people who I know some people who uh 
I know some people who have had some success. We've interviewed one or two of them on this show who regularly yeah. regularly have success with Facebook. So you mean Craigslist? Craigslist. Um, I had many interesting experiences, but something that was really noticeable to me is I wasn't really enjoying it in the way that I expected. I would, I would, I would enjoy it. And something that was a really telling moment is I was lying in the afterglow with this man that was uh, a hookup from Craigslist. And he said to me, and you know, this is before my transition. So I was presenting as a man at the time. And he said, the great thing about this is there are no chicks around. So we don't have to do any cards or hogs or cuddles or, or flowers. And he rattled off a list of things. And I, I didn't voice it, but I was thinking inside my head, I want every single one of those things. <laughs> so that kind of gave me pause. And I just kind of, I kind of, well, I, I stopped doing that because there's just, I wasn't getting the enjoyment that I wanted. It was many, many years ago, uh, long after my transition, when I found uh, the person that right now I'm considering the love of my life. And they first took me to bed. And they fucked me like a woman. And it brought me to tears. And I was like, oh my God, this is what I needed. This is what I had been missing all these years. And it's a completely different experience and um it's it's a real shame and i'm hoping that that's why i really like to work with trans kids and with parents of trans kids because i'm I'm really hoping to convey what a terrible loss it is to 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 lose your virginity at 52 (laughs) or at 49 because this should have happened to me when i was 17 this should i should have known this this stuff about myself when i was a teenager so what kind of took you from, you know, that place and, you know, discovering yourself to, you know, now actually like being an activist and helping other people? Like what, what was that, uh, you know, what was that journey for you? What caused that? I transitioned mostly in isolation for the first few years. And there's a phenomenon called, there's two phenomena that I should just mention, which one thing that is called purging. And that's when you're there, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw some terminology at you. So somebody who's not transitioned yet, the slang is they're an egg. <laughs> they're an egg, like they haven't hatched yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I was still an egg, quote unquote, I I was terrified, and I was sitting on all this religious guilt, and I was sitting on all this or quasi religious guilt. I was sitting on 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 this idea of respectability of what I expected of myself. Um, and um, with, a, with an image of trans people as, you know, I'm, I'm talking, this is pre-Laverne Cox, pre-Janet Mock, pre-Caitlyn Jenner, pre the whole wave that came in 2015. Um, I knew that I was, I was going to burn my life up and I was going to end up living in a bridge with people throwing stones at me. That was my perception. Um, but it was just this, this trying to live like that was horrible. But anyway, so I tried to transition on my own and it was terror and it was agony. And the more that I got emboldened and, the, and I, I saw, I was going to mention there's purging, which is a couple of times I decided, no, I'm not doing this. This is insane. I'm going to throw away all the girl clothes. I'm going to throw away all the makeup. I'm going to throw away anything that signals feminine. I wasted so much money. I threw away such cute outfits. 
I did that twice. I did it in 2012 and 13, I want to say. And then in 2014, I, be, I joined a sex-positive community in Los Angeles called Sex Positive Los Angeles, SPLA. And the first orientation meeting that I went to, they, they asked me for my name and for my pronouns. And this, for me, was a, an extremely difficult question to answer. Uh, and it took so long that they almost moved on. And then I finally said, and I was presenting kind of ambiguous, like you probably couldn't figure out what the heck I was. I was wearing a blouse, but I, I never wore wigs. I, I, I'm really against artifice. So I never wore breast forms. I never wore wigs. Um, but I very quietly said, well, this is my birth name. And I gave my original name. And then I said, but I would much prefer to be called Cassie. And, and then I hesitated again. And then I said, and, and my pronouns are she, her. And that was, that, that took all the energy I had. And I was like, all right, now let me just leave and go to sleep. And instead, um, Gabriela, the woman leading it, said to a room full of 60 people, everyone give a warm welcome to Cassie. And everybody said, hi, Cassie. And I just started bawling. Um, it was an amazing moment. And from that point forward, I had found my group. I had found at least one group where I was okay. And that really, really helped. So this notion of community is really important. And so this got me thinking, I don't want other people to experience what I'm experiencing, which is how I created Empowered Trans Woman. And the idea is for other trans women to feel empowered. But, but also, by the way, to kind of move away from this victimhood narrative that's so common in the media, and yes, trans women are getting murdered, and yes, we're marginalized, and yes, there's a lot of important information that cisgender people need to hear about how tough it is for us. But the thing is, it's not that great for us, for the young girls trying to transition, to hear those stories and only those stories, because then we're, we're already terrified, and then that's what we hear. So I wanted to put forward the narrative of like, you know what, there's lawyers who are transitioning. There's an opera singer in Argentina who's trans. There's Dr. Marcy Bowers, who's a renowned surgeon and she volunteers in Africa um, fixing uh, female genital mutilation. And there's all these amazing women of transition experience in the world. And let's talk about them for a change. So that kind of what, I, I wanted to put forward a hopeful message. Part of it is for myself, you know? No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let me ask you this: like, what you know, you're you're as far as what you're talking about. Like, what do you think are you know maybe the biggest myth that uh, you know when people are thinking about trans people in general or about transitioning specifically that you hear that you think that people need to be educated on? There's a few, and uh, um, hoping not to go on too long a rant or too ranty a rant. <laughs> um, one of the I'm going to steal too ranty a rant, by the way. That's totally something I'm going to say now. <laughs> too ranty rant. <laughs> so something that I find really disturbing is how often you hear something like, this is a sentence that just makes me grind my teeth. Um, and this is uh, something that Hillary Clinton said recently about the fact that uh, women have valid concerns about trans women in public restrooms. So the challenge with that sentence, it, I mean, People have valid concerns about a lot of things. I'm not discounting the concerns. The real problem with the sentence is, no, cisgender women 
have concerns with transgender women. Both of these groups are women. Mm. And if you don't acknowledge that, we already start with the wrong foot. It's, it's, it's so difficult to convey to cisgender people the level of entitlement and privilege. Um, we don't get to talk in 2020 about whether them colored kids are welcome in our white schools. That is insane. And in the same manner, we don't get to talk what type of woman is allowed to pee in a woman's bathroom. And so I find that to be just, it just drives me off the wall. It's like, it, let's not talk about what trans people might or might do in women's spaces. Women's spaces are for women. And we are women. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to discount trans no, no, people. Don't speak about the narrative. Yeah. And, and and I find that I just find that to be an absurd argument. You know, I um, and maybe it's because of my background. You know, I worked in law enforcement for a long time. But it, it, this concept that like, uh, you know, people people who are going to do something like that, like people who are going to break the law in that way, people who are going to you know like perv on kids, which is really what people are saying at the end of the day, right? Maybe just they that they don't need an excuse to do it. They're just going to do it. Anyways, like the reasoning behind that is just absurd. Like, uh, uh, yeah, I, so that's always kind of blown my mind a little bit. Uh, Plus, you know, quite frankly, the guy who's raping uh, or somebody is, is you know, the, the what was he, um, a swim champion uh, college student who will drag the, the grad student behind the dumpster. It's, it's not, or, or it's some relative in the, ho- in the home. It's like, Let's talk about, I'm sorry, I don't want to switch conversation to rape. I'm saying like the stories that um, trans exclusionists put forward, they're, they're fictions. They're not stories that happen. When I go to the bathroom, I'm focused on peeing and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not I don't make it a point to fling my genitals around the room and hit people with them, you know? Um, that, uh, some Michelle Wolf said, Michelle Wolf is amazing. And she said a great, great thing, which is that, Men are trying to protect women um, from whatever might happen in women's bathrooms. And clearly we've made women's bathrooms too mysterious because (laughs) (laughs) we're not not like, you know, comparing labia in there or something. Like if, if you see somebody's genitals in a public restroom, something's gone wrong. (laughs) 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 <laughs> what what are some of the other you said there were a few what are what are the other other myths that you think that you know are kind of most prevalent that you'd like to bust i appreciate you asking another one that's really important is trans women are socialized as men trans women are not socialized as girls and i wrote an article and if i can plug it it's cassiebrider.com slash single story we'll link to it in the show notes but i i actually would be really interested if you could just uh you know, for those of us who might not, I, I actually am not really sure what you just said. So if you could just clarify that a little more and we'll link to that article in the show notes as well. I absolutely will. Thank you. The concept of the single story, there's this narrative that trans women are not socialized. They, they have all the privileges of men for all these years. So hmm. um, I'm going to argue the fallacy for a second and then I'll debunk it. But the fallacy is like, well, sure, they might be women, but I mean... 
they had male privilege for most of their lives. So don't tell me that they were, you know, bleeding through their white pants at 12. Don't tell me that they went through childbirth. Don't tell me that they experienced all these women hardships. That's the story. And what's kind of the, if you don't mind, sorry, before you go any further on debunking it, what's kind of the the conclusion to that train of thought though? So they didn't go through these things as kids. So what's the follow-up to that? Like where, where do people take that? It's one of many different narratives for othering, for, for, for saying not one of us, for saying you can't, it's, it's the mean kids. It's, it's a middle school mean kids thing of you can't sit with us. Do you see what I mean? It's just, it's the Heathers. It's, it's girls being mean. Uh, and, Is it kind uh, of like this, you're not real women idea? Yeah, Is that I mean, kind of the follow-up behind the it? Day, well, at the end of the day, it's all about you're not real women. And so what I say to that is, and, and I, the, the person that, I leaning, that I'm leaning for this is Chimamanda Ngozi Andechi, the, the Nigerian feminist. She has a wonderful TED talk called The Danger of a Single Story. And she was talking about like, everybody assumes that Nigerians are poor and you know African people are living in dirt. She grew up upper middle class in Nigeria. She moved for college to Minnesota and people were like, oh, you speak English so well. And she says, English is my mother tongue. And that's what we speak in Nigeria. And then people are like, oh, it's amazing that you know how to use the washer dryer. And she's like, I had a washer dryer growing up. And people are like, oh, what's your music? And she's like, I'm listening to Mariah Carey, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And then Chimamanda herself, when she talks about trans women, she makes her, her own mistake because she's talking about, you know, trans women haven't had the same story as women. Well, none of us have had the same story. If I were to compare notes with you, Cassie, we, we, we've had different lives. We've had different stories. You can't tell me that a brown girl growing up in the Heights in New York has the same experience as a blonde girl growing up in Malibu or a nun growing up in Mexico, and these are all women. Um, so, no, we all have very different stories, but ultimately the main thing that I'm trying to put forward is this myth of the male privilege that trans women have. When I did the Empowered Trans Woman Summit, I heard stories that start out like this, and I would ask this, the kind of question that you asked me, which is like, tell me about your journey, right? And the Puerto Rican trans girl who told me, well, at seven, um, child protective services had to take me out of my house because my father was beating me with a metal rod because I was too much of a sissy. And, you know, she tells me about how she ended up peddling her ass on the streets at 14 and 15 because she had an abusive stepfather um, because she was too desirable as a very feminine teenager. And this is not male privilege. And even myself, like I tried so hard to shelter myself and to hide myself. But in my case, I grew up in a chauvinistic household in a chauvinistic country in Argentina. And my mother was really mousy. She was not a feminist. She was a suburban housewife. And I grew up with a sense of like, well, women are definitely uh, inferior to men. Men definitely have the upper hand it's definitely better to be a man than to be a woman. Uh, And I know that I'm not, and I know that I'm secretly a girl. And 
how the fuck can I get out of this? Um, what saved me, the first thing that saved me was Wonder Woman. <laughs> uh, Linda Carter's Wonder Woman, when I was 12, I started watching that show and I was like, oh my God, this is the woman I want to be, you know? Tall red heels and kicking ass. Yes, that's. That. <laughs> we just uh, at our baby shower yesterday. Just got a Wonder Woman onesie for a little one. So somebody oh, gave us a Wonder Woman onesie. And you know, the next big hero of mine. This was just such important messaging for me. Uh, I went to see Alien, the original. And uh, now, by now, everybody knows the story of Alien and everybody knows Ripley as a character. But I have to tell you, as a 13-year-old watching this in the theater, there's, I'll forget the guy's name, but, you know, tall, bearded dude, captain of the ship with a big machine gun. He's going to save the day. He's, the, he's so obviously the hero. He's the guy. And, yeah, sure, there were a couple of women on board, but, you know, they're the eye candy. And there's a few well, other the first ones to go. <laughs> right. They're probably going to be the first ones to go. And then the alien starts attacking everybody. The, the big bearded captain gets mauled. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> like, okay, now they're all screwed. And then Ripley picks up a machine gun and, and she's a badass. And it blows my mind. I'm like, oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> so uh, but anyway um what i'm trying to say is when you grow up a secret girl in a world of men you grow up agonizing about being found out agonizing of not being too much of a sissy at the barbecue at saturday, saturday barbecues this is argentina so there's a barbecue like every weekend and the men the grown men my father and his friends would congregate around the grill and they would tell the most misogynistic uh, ball and chain um, women, am I right? Jokes. Um, and they would tell transphobic jokes. Okay, so get this. Many, many years ago, when I'm going through my Craigslist phase, I'm on all fours with this big black dude in a hotel room. And I suddenly realize I am inside one of my father's jokes right now. <laughs> For a second, I was like, that was a hard left turn. I was like, oh, you brought it back around. <laughs> I was like, where is this going? I don't know, but I feel like any story that starts that way is worth telling. So, okay. so what I mean is like when you grow up, there was this terrifying fear of the fact that you, it's Stock, Stockholm Syndrome. It's, it's being a hostage. It's not male privilege. Um, at the same time, I do have to concede that Car salesmen, for example, have a, a set of initials they, they write at the top of their clipboards. I don't know if they, do, if they do this anymore, but they write SLA, which stands for single lady alone. And that means that you're probably going to get a sticker price for this because she's not going to be able to negotiate well because she's going to be weaker. Um, when I bought my first car, I didn't get an SLA on top of my clipboard because I was wearing khakis and a, you know, and a, a blue shirt or whatever and I had short hair so there is a level of male privilege but it comes to the price and it's really entangled it's not as simple as as dismissing as that and also in terms of the the not experiencing pregnancy 
yeah, we don't. And also, I can tell you of the pain of going to all the appointments with a spouse and having everybody celebrate the fact that the miracle of life is happening in her womb and a dead big fat zero is happening in mine. And something really strange that happened to me recently, this is about two years ago, I was lying in bed, uh, already, you know, fairly along in my transition, I was lying in bed and just kind of, you know, when the mind kind of wanders on, on a Saturday morning and my boobs are growing and I'm kind of going through a second puberty and um, it suddenly, for some reason, hits me with a thud that I'm look, looking ahead, right? Like, what are the next steps? What's going to happen next? It hits me with a thud. I am never going to get my first menstruation. I am never going to have that moment. I am never going to give birth. It's not, oh, when I get that procedure, it's not that I have to get a letter from a doctor. It's not about seeing a judge. That will never, ever, ever happen for me. And I just started sobbing there in bed. And the whole time I'm sobbing, I'm thinking to myself, you're an idiot. But still, I guess I knew it intellectually, but it's the first time that I really confronted it emotionally. So when people talk about male socialization and stuff in terms of trans women, it, it's very hard to convey how, how wrong they feel. Um, so those are, the, I think, the, the biggest misconceptions. There's a number of others. There's a lot attached to pre-operative uh, trans women in terms of the fact that we still might have external genitalia. And it's not, it's not what men have. It might look like what men have, but it doesn't feel that way we don't think of it that way we don't process it that way something that does a lot of harm for trans women is what's classed as female porn because i i gosh i'm trying not to go on too much of a tangent but it's really really hard to get a job when you're a trans woman um the discrimination is fierce it's it's just savage so a lot of trans girls end up especially if you're pretty and young they end up in sex work and if you have the opportunity to go into a set and get $1,500 pretending to be something that you're not, then what these girls do is they, took, they take two or three Vi Viagra pills and they force themselves to engage in behavior and in acts which are really counterintuitive to them. Um, completely for the male gaze and completely not the kind of sex that they enjoy experiencing. So that creates a misperception. It's kind of the same. I really enjoy weird parallels and analogies. I hope that you forgive me, but it's kind of the same way that in the 70s, black actors were forced with the really weird compromise of if they want to work in Hollywood, they have to play a pimp or a thief or a killer. Um, and so you have to choose, are, are you going to betray your people by misportraying them or are you going to go broke? It's that like betrayal by typecasting sort of thing. Right. By, by misportraying them and by not showing them in the best light. Mm -hmm. so then, okay. So enough rants. <laughs> Those are like enough misconceptions. We went, we, we did the ranting. We did uh, the rant. wasn't too ranty. We kept it. <laughs> we kept it at a good level. Yeah. So 
One of the things that you talked about, and I, I, I'm going to go there and shift for a second, but you know, you were talking about that none of these experiences are the same, right? And I was listening to you talk about pregnancy and, and sort of how you got to witness your partner go through pregnancy. And I'm actually sitting here thinking about my partner, right? I'm, I'm in, a, in a relationship with another woman and she is not the one having the baby. And she's having a lot of those same feelings, a lot of those same uh, uh, emotions of like, I'm not the carrier. I'm not the person who's, you know, doing the thing. And that has brought in a lot of feelings. So the fact that you said that, I'm like, actually, like, there is like common, you know, stories there, you know, there is overlap. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And when I speak about these things with my lesbian friends, these things come up. My friend Margot um, felt constantly slapped in the face because, um, and they tried to adopt, they flew to Spain, and they they tried to do all these things, and then that didn't that didn't end up being the right choice. So the, her, her partner ended up uh, being the one carrying the pregnancy. And every single time that she would say something about we are expecting or our kid, or even afterwards, like the kid is two years old now. And still what people say, and I, I fully agree with Margot that this is a completely inappropriate question. Uh, she'll say, this is her daughter. And then they look at both of them and they say, oh, who carried her? Who's the mother? And or who's like, the real mom? Both the moms, yeah. Yeah. So uh, at some point, I want to talk about the word mom because there's some baggage there. <laughs> we'll definitely swing back around to that. But I, I just, I, when you were talking about it, I was like, it's a, it, it really is one of these things that not all women have the same story. Exactly, yeah. And uh, it, it's interesting when I speak to my lesbian friends, how many times we find points of commonality in not being seen yeah. or being misportrayed. And it's because we, and this is something that I, I feel pretty strongly about, is like we've ha- we have got to unhinge from these really narrow heteronormic narratives. It's kind of like when lesbians are asked, who's the dude? And Ellen had the great comeback for that, which is, neither which is kind of the point (laughs) (laughs) absolutely so i'm gonna i'm gonna step in for a second because i think cassie's having some contractions while we're talking (laughs) i had one i had one it's fine (laughs) (laughs) other 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 funny note here you can tell that our uh our teenager is used to parents who podcast because i had i had texted him and asked him to bring me a tylenol because i had a headache and he shows up with a bottle that says ibuprofen on it. And I'm like, no, Tylenol. And he leaves and comes back with a poster that says there's Tylenol in the bottle so he doesn't have to talk while we're recording. <laughs> he took he took the, po- the that magnetic poster, he wrote it and took it off the fridge and carried it back. Uh, uh. That was a pregnant pause you just had. But a bum. So, you know, I, I, we'd wanted to touch on gender dysphoria and like what that's, what that's like, but I feel like we kind of did when we were talking about your story. We kind of did. And it's, uh, I, I, there's a couple of things that I want to say about it, which Please is, do. it's hard to explain, but um, a friend of mine who's a psychologist in Los Angeles, Natalia Zikareva, um, she's a Russian woman, has a really interesting accent, and but she's really good. She works with trans women. She describes it as, um, and this will sound like trivializing when I first say it, but 
imagine the feeling that you have, and this applies more to women, I think, than to men, but imagine the feeling that you have when you have a bad haircut. I mean, like when you go to the hairstylist and you spend, you know, 150, 200 bucks and you have, you have a bad hairstyle and that mortifying feeling of like, now you have to face the world like this. And, and I'm not talking about like a slightly off shade of blonde that you were going for. I'm talking about like a hideous hairstyle. So would you say like when you go and your hair is supposed to be red and then it's multicolored because they accidentally mixed bleach into your ha- hair and then they tell you it's okay because you look like Avril Lavigne. Avril Lavigne. While you're on your way to teach at a kink conference? Yes. When you're supposed to be leaving from there to go to a kink conference. Sort of like that. Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah. That doesn't sound as hypothetical as you might think. <laughs> <laughs> No, it but wasn't. Exactly like that. But now imagine that times 100 and imagine that every day of your life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it can be agonizing. And then you it's hard to know what triggers it. Um, and because of that, you're kind of constantly on guard. You're constantly, your fight or flight instinct is, is engaged a lot. I was at a Thanksgiving social event uh, with my sex positive community in Los Angeles, I was talking to a couple, um, the woman I had known, I had known both of them for three years. This woman had come to my all girl slumber parties. She had seen me in lingerie. She had seen me in a nightie. At the time when we were talking here at Thanksgiving, I was wearing a fairy outfit and I had makeup and earrings on. And I mentioned the fact that I was having trouble with my spouse and that there was a custody battle looming. And she turned to her husband who was standing behind her and she said, oh, he's having a lot of trouble with his ex-wife because his ex-wife might take him to court. And I had this moment of dissonance trying to catch up. Like, did I lose time? Did we jump to another conversation? Who are we talking about now? Who's this other person? What's happening? And then the coin dropped and I realized, oh my God, she's talking about me. And it's not that I was offended. Um, The walls closed in and I heard a ringing sound in my head and I felt nauseous. And I had to run and grab my purse. And by the time I got to my car, I was just weeping. That was probably one of the worst bouts that I had. But um, I got home and I tore all my clothes and I got into bed. And I, it's... you want to rip out your clothes in the same way that you want to rip out a bad outfit. Uh, you want to rip out your body. And obviously you can't. Um, now it's lessened a lot for me because I'm, I'm fairly along in my transition and um, it's probably not as visible anymore, but there's still moments when it really kind of hits me hard. And it's not, they always sexualize this experience. This is not about... I have a lot less gender dysphoria as a result of my genitalia uh, than I do, for example, out of the fact that I still have to shave sometimes or, or some detail like that about my anatomy. Um, but it can, it can be soul crushing. It's like, I know who I am and my body is lying to you. <laughs> I think it's the best way to explain it. I, I recently was talking to my 13-year-old daughter who is trying to put together a GSA alliance in her school. And so she was trying to pick my brain and she said, could you describe 
what the feelings are like. And so this is what I came up with. And this kind of worked with her, which is I said, Emma, think about what's an identity that's really important to you. And she said, well, gymnastics. So I said, okay, gymnastics doesn't exist. It's not a thing. Nobody's ever heard of it. And it's a fiction. Um, and none of the vocabulary that you use for gymnastics is valid. Now, explain to me that identity. And she described the gymnastics, and I was like, I don't get it. So you're like a ballerina. And she said, no, it's, it's, it's like a sport. And I said, like soccer? Like, I don't remember you having a ball. How are you playing soccer with a ball? And she's like, I'm not playing soccer. And I'm like, well, but you said you were playing a sport. I'm like, is it like track? And she says, no, I'm not running. And she's getting visibly upset. And so I stop her and I say, tell me how you feel right now. And she started laughing. She said, oh, this feels awful. <laughs> yeah, that. So when you, with when dealing with these things, and, and, and obviously different people at different times are going to be, it's going to impact them more. Like what can you do for support? What can you do to, to start moving away from that? you know, feeling and, and, and feeling awful and, and start feeling and embracing who you are? Well, even though the experiences are all different, there is really an instruction manual. Um, for some reason, I don't know if everybody will identify with this, but I feel really heartened and relieved when I realize that it's not just me, that I'm part of a micro trend and that other people experience the same things. I feel vindicated. And so that's why I did my Empowered Trans Woman Summit. And that's why it's so important to join communities. There's a lot of Facebook communities for transgender people. And also there's support groups and there's gender therapists that you can reach out, reach out to. Shame is what kind of will keep a person in their shell and away from it. But if they can fight against the shame enough to, to join a group, to participate in community, they're going to realize that they're not that unique. And it's so funny now to share a story with a trans woman and saying, oh, and then I felt this thing. And she's like, yeah, like we all go through that. And I'm like, oh, I thought it was just me. <laughs> uh, so don't, don't experience these things in isolation. That's absolutely major. Okay, so there's, there's one thought that comes to my head. And I'm going to be prescriptive for a second. So first I'm going to inoculate you against my bullshit. And I'm going to say, this is just Cassie talking and she's just talking out of her ass and you can build your own journey and do it your way. But this is what I've learned and maybe it might be effective for you, maybe not. But having said that, this is one of the biggest problems is you, can you imagine the cork in a bottle of champagne? That's the way a lot of people come out. The way a lot of people come out is I've kept this bottled up for decades and now I'm, I'm, I'm to the point of, of suicidal tendencies and whatnot, and I have to come out. And then they do this, just, they come out to everybody in, in a really sloppy, disorganized manner. And it's kind of like they spread their transness all over the walls and all over the room. It's kind of like, you know, um, Kevin Pollack kind of a pattern. And... So what I'm trying to say is be a little bit more strategic and a little bit more thought out. First thing is to own it and to 
allow yourself to experience it like, okay, okay, I'm trans. The second thing is to confide in a couple of trusted people. Like in my case, I confided in my roommate because I had no alternative. I was going to be wearing dresses at home. I was going to wear blouses at home. So he had to know, and luckily he supported me and he called me Cassie and he gave me my right pronouns. Um, Find people that are going to be staunch allies. They're going to be a secret. Maybe your siblings, maybe your best friend, but don't tell anybody else. Then plan out how you're going to come out at work. And when you, or school, when you think about how to come out at work, think about getting fired. And I think that people tend to downplay this because there's all these laws, protection laws. Protection laws, my ass, you get fired anyway because, oh, no, no, we were just reallocating resources. We were outsourcing. We're, we're just, you know, we had to make cuts. You can get fired anyway. And I'm, I, I know what I'm talking about. Um, think about your next step. Uh, think about, you know, putting together six months of, of income aside before you tell your boss. Think about looking for a new job and then arriving at your new job with the experience already, but at least, you know, started. So in terms of your parents, I think that I did something wrong. Your parents are probably going to have the hardest time with this because they've known you with one name since they gave birth to you and because they have such expectations in their head, such stories built in their head about you, which honestly they have no, and I'm speaking to an expectant mother, so I'm kind of preaching. <laughs> You're fine. Have at it. Yeah. Which is, you know, I forget whose quote this is, but your children are not your own children. Your children are children of the earth and they have their own lives and their own stories. And, quite often we project so much into our kids. I'm like, she's going to be a ballerina and he's going to be a soccer star or a football player. And no, he's not. No, she's not. They're going to do whatever the hell they want to do. And it's not about the parents' expectations. It's about the child having a full life. And parents have a really hard time with that. So if I were to do things differently with my mother, I would have given her more time. It was agonizing to have her misgender me. It was agonizing to have her use the wrong name for me, to introduce me. She also, she outed me to, every, to all our relatives. She came back to me and she very happily, giddily told me that, oh, by the way, they're all fine. And I said, they're all fine with what? And she's like, I told everybody that you're gay. And I was like, um, not though. <laughs> um, I guess I'm gay in the fact that I sleep with women, but I also sleep with men. (laughs) Um, Honestly, if I had to do it over again, I would have been a lot more patient. I couldn't find the patience at the time, and our relationship ended as a result. Um, So I I would say pace yourself with your parents and have a lot more patience because you're, especially your friends that know you through transition or know you after transition, are going to have a much easier time with it or people who are not as invested like people at work than your mother might um, expect your mother, your mother to be a pain in the ass would I guess be the title of my next book. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's, you know, we, we talk a lot to people about coming out as polyamorous and a lot of, it's just interesting to me. I, I've never had like a long discussion with somebody about like, you know, what steps should you take when you're coming out as trans? 
And it's a lot of very similar discussions, you know, like find, like find the people first, you know, will be accepting. Like when you're talking about your family, find the people, you know, will be your ally off the bat rather than going to the people who, you know, are going to be problematic, have a plan. plan. Yeah. Know what you're getting into at work. And, you know, it's funny because when you, when when you're talking about this, I'm thinking, I've never specifically said, you know, the people closest to you will have the hardest time with stuff, but you know, I have found that you know, even talking about, like I said, coming out as poly to be the case, like strangers, most of the people I talk to as strangers tend to be fine. It's close family who, you know what I mean? Has, uh, yeah. Dan Savage, when he was talking about coming out as polyamorous said that like, when you come out to your parents, you kind of have to just give them like a two year tantrum time. Like just give them <laughs> two years, like be like, look, I recognize you're going to have a tantrum. Yeah, I think some people take longer than others. Yeah, I was going to say not your parents. Your parents have taken much longer, Rigel. <laughs> but what I'm saying is is that 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 was one of the things he was saying is, is that, you know, your parents, because they have, as you said, all of these ideas of exactly who and what you're going to be, it ends up being And the I hardest. suspect that's much worse, actually, when you're trans, right? Because that's such a... That, like, you know, it's a boy, it's a girl, right, from the break, right? Like... And also, like something I, I I feel compelled to mention because if I don't, somebody's going to call me on it. Which is, you have to you have to check cisgender people on on some privilege stuff. So, it's not exactly the same. Like I understand the similarity, but at the same time, you can always choose not to say at the dinner table, uh, not to disclose at the dinner table about your husband and your boyfriend. You can just keep your mouth shut. But I can't take off my breasts. <laughs> and um, I suppose that I have a little bit of luxury in the fact that by now I'm passable, which by, that, by the way, at some point we should talk about that. But um, I can't hide myself. Um, it's kind of like also this similar narrative happens with bisexuality and lesbians. Lesbians are like, yeah, because you have the comfort of like sheltering yourself in heteronormativity and bisexual girls are like, no, listen, I'm going through tri- hardship as well. So it's the same in, in some ways, but it's also in some ways very much not the same because um, I have much less choice. This is much more visible and visceral. Then again, as I say this, you want to hear the really funny thing is I came, up as tra- I came out as trans to both my parents and now neither parent talks to me. I never even told them about being poly. <laughs> yeah, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to completely agree with you that there's 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 a lot of differences. I'm sure the one one place I have to plant a flag on what you just said, uh, and I would never I would never first off I want to say I would never start with equating the experiences. Um, I I I was pointing out some similarities in in how we tell people to come out, but I would uh, I would I would imagine it is much harder in so many ways to come out as trans than it is to to come out as polyamorous. But the one place I am going to insist on planting a flag on what you just said is uh, depending on on how your relationships look and how involved people are in your lives, at some point, uh, not explaining a partner as a partner and not coming out as polyamorous, uh, you know, you wind up with the choice of, am I making this person feel bad and feel like a dirty little secret forever? Or am I, uh, you know, am I hiding it? So... Or am I coming out about it? So that, that's the one place I do want to I do want to plant a flag on what you just said there. 
those similarities exist. And something that would be silly would be for us to argue about who's more oppressed because the reality is like the, it's, it's one common enemy and it's the source of the oppression. Um, I remember um, having a conversation with a, a fellow employee. He had just gotten married and I was still in the closet at the time. This was during my Craigslist stage. I was like sleeping with men. I was trying to find myself. And I was secretly secretive about it, but we we're having a conversation about gays at work. And he said, well, I just don't want them to flaunt it, right? Like they can keep it to themselves. And I point to his desk and I'm like, oh, is that a picture of your new bride and you at their wedding, at your wedding? And he said, yeah. And I'm like, could you please not flaunt it? Because mm. that offends me, like all that you know, you throwing your sexuality at me like that. And um, ironically, a polyamorous friend of mine brought up the fact that she is really pained about the fact that she can't put a picture of her husband and her boyfriend at work. Um, and that she doesn't, she uh, organizes over this. Oh, uh, and here's a funny anecdote. I drove my kids for Thanksgiving to see my older daughter who lives in the Bay Area. And under her mother, who I'm really close friends with. And <laughs> on the way there, Elena tells me, oh, by the way, so um, you know how I told you that we, th my, my boyfriend and then his girlfriend and I are now a triad, a triad. I said, yeah. And she's like, well, it's more of a quad now. So <laughs> like, all right. So. We show up and at the Thanksgiving table, we have um, my older daughter and her boyfriend and her girlfriend and her other boyfriend. And she says, oh, there's one more who is part of our pod and he's going to be here in about half an hour. And I'm like, is there somebody else under the couch that we're... <laughs> And uh, so my daughter had a lot of, my, my youngest daughter, 13 year old, had a lot of questions. And then of course, a week later, I get a call from the other mom saying, that was like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I, I, now that you, you'd brought it up and it was something we actually wanted to talk about because, uh, you know, I know that you, you have done some discussion on uh, you know, coming out to your kids. And, uh, you know, that's something I'd be really interested to hear you talk a little more about. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's some things I did right, some things I did wrong. Um, it starts with a funny story because my son is 11 years old and my daughter is six and he's sitting next to me in the car, about to park the car. And my daughter is in the back, and quite honestly, I'm not proud of this, but I kind of forget about her <laughs> because she's younger, because she kind of drifts off into her world, and because the 11-year-old is really interesting at this point of his life, and we're having really interesting conversations. Um, soon after, by the way, my daughter demanded front seat privileges, and we started <laughs> dividing them equally. But at the time, I was like, I, I basically forgot she was there. And so I turned to my son, and I say, Evan, would, would, would you freak out if you saw me wearing girl clothes? And Evan immediately says, and he used the word dad at the time, um, which, yeah, that's something I definitely want to touch on. But so he turned to me, he said, of course not, dad. I just want you to be happy, 
which I mean, isn't that an incredibly good response from a kid, right? And how old at the time? I'm sorry, I missed it if you said it. He was 11. Okay. And so I had the millisecond to soak in in the uh, moment. <laughs> and then my daughter out to the back seat goes, I would freak out. <laughs> I would scream real loud. <laughs> and I'm like, but why? And she says, boys, girl, wear boys' clothes. Girls wear girls' clothes. Six-year-olds are the gender police. Six-year-olds are merciless. My six-year-old daughter wouldn't touch any other cup than the pink Cinderella cup. Um, Evan wouldn't touch the pink cup because it's toxic. It's radioactive. He wouldn't go near it. It was hilarious. Um, but anyway, so that was the start, telling my kids, after telling my roommate, telling my kids, slowly we started having the conversations. First, I, Katy Perry helped me out. I took them to see the Katy Perry movie, and she had gay people and lesbians on stage, like in front of us, gay men and lesbian women. And so we started having a conversation about LGBT people. I'm guessing this is 2011, 2012. I took them to Pride on the basis that I was bisexual, I guess a bisexual man. And around that time, we started having conversations about gender. That led to eventually my announcement, which was freaking terrifying, but to tell them I'm going to start, well, I'm going to start wearing women's clothes at, clothes at home was not disastrous. That was pretty easy. Like, like the kids were really chill about it. I'm thinking a teenager's party thinking, you know what? I could give a shit as long as I get fed and I can play my video games. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about accurate with our kiddo. <laughs> do, it, do whatever. I want my video games. But then, you know, then there's this period. Oh, my gosh. I really want to acknowledge this period, which is right now being transgender right now is not hard for me. I have recently gone to Fred Meyer's without any makeup and I got ma'am and miss and nobody um, treated me other than just the frumpy suburban housewife that I looked like, I guess. I, I've noticed things like I'm opening the door in my bathrobe to, be, to greet some UPS guy and he says, oh, sorry to bother you, ma'am, can I sign here? I'm aware of the fact that right now I have less to worry about in terms of my appearance, but there's this period and to rant for one second more, Caitlyn Jenner, er, that woman, uh, um, she did such a disservice to the whole trans community by doing this incredibly stupid kind of transition of she's Bruce, she's Bruce, she's Bruce, cut, next episode, she's this gorgeous woman. That's not how it works. The most important part of the narrative is left out, which is, no, we don't get to transition in private. No, we don't get to magically appear as somebody else. We have three, four, sometimes six years of looking really hella awkward and feeling hella bad and getting mocked and um, getting misgendered and having these horrible experiences between three and six years. And those are awful. Mm -hmm. um, so that was and for my kids, too, like I felt really bad for them, like picking them up at Boys and Girls Club or at school and knowing that I'm getting stares and knowing that that's going to translate quite possibly into bullying for my children. That was mortifying. Luckily, they didn't experience a lot of that. 
my son, um, I think, had the most cost to this because we were the boys. We were, you know, he had, he had I guess, a, a, a path um, setter ahead of him into the journey of manhood. And then I did a hard left from the trail and I left him there standing all alone. So um, I, I, I feel really bad about him. My daughter was thrilled to have, you know, to be able to like, let's talk makeup now, let's talk nails. But my son took a loss and I kind of dismissed it at the time thinking, well, first of all, I had to say, I got I to gotta do self-care. If he wants me around, I got to focus on my own care. Uh, I didn't say it to him, of course, but I was thinking in my head, you know that analogy, you grab the the air mask first? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We use that quite a bit, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but at a cost, because now I feel like uh, kind of funny. At one point recently, I went to heaven and I said, he's in college now. He's in his first year of college. And I said to him, listen, I'm in a better place now. And if you ever need your dad, I can wear that hat for you. And he just laughed and he said, Cassie, your gender dysphoria shattered that into a million pieces a long time ago. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, drama much? Who's the queen now? Because he's gay. So <laughs> but I, I feel bad a little bit for the fact that I didn't respect his pain as much. Um, and ideally, I would have had a little bit more spoons for him too. So could you just give maybe like, three quick tips that you would give to parents or grandparents for coming out to their children? Oh, I don't know. Don't come out. Don't have children. (laughs) (laughs) That'll make it easy. There you Um. go. Boom. Done. (laughs) We only needed two. (laughs) Um, So the first thing is like steep them in, in uh, acceptance and social justice to begin with so that they're not alien to the fact that there's people different. That so they don't think everybody looks like my God. I was gonna say the Brady's, but that'll go, that's gonna make me sound so incredibly old. Who's like a good reference point these days? <laughs> um, but do you know the show Modern Family? Yes. I'm not great with TV. Yes, I do. Yeah, but there's like you see a gay, a loving gay couple, and mm-hmm. you see lesbians on the show, and you see diversity, and you see people of different races, and you see different experiences. You get of a sense out of the fact that not everybody is going to be the heteronormic white couple. So steep them in that sense of, of not this heteronormic entitlement and this straight jacket of conformity that, that sometimes, and I, I know that this is hard if you're, if you're listening from Oklahoma or if you're listening from North Carolina, but get people to just the, the, TV shows and, and the books that they read and stuff like that put in them the seed of social justice and diversity and inclusion so that by the time that you tell them, oh, by the way, this is not just theoretical, um, they're not going to be completely blindsided. Um, if you expose them to YouTube, YouTube, by the way, is terrific, such a great resource. Show them YouTube and show them, you know, like I am jazz and... Um, other, you know, um, Avery Jackson and other young trans kids going through transition and stuff like that. So that by the time you tell them, by the way, this is my own experience as well, they're not going to be completely lost as to what the hell you're talking about. 
discuss how gender is different from biological sex with them, for example. So that helps. And do it before, like not the same day, not 15 minutes before you announce that you're trans, but create a buffer of experience. So by the time you're like, hey, listen, there's something important I have to tell you, they already have some kind of reference points in their mind. And then prepare them for each step of the game. Like tell them, listen, starting next week, I'm going to be experimenting with clothing and give them context. I really believe in giving children context. Context is the most important thing you can give your children. Explain to them the bigger picture of how life works. So in this case, I would tell them, I have to start. It's very scary for me and I'm terrified. I'm not doing it because I want to. I'm doing it because it's, it's my homework, basically. I have to start wearing clothes from the gender I belong to. And no, it's going to look silly. And no, I'm not going to get it right. And it's going to be awkward for everybody. And I'm sorry, but I have to do this. So be prepared because it's coming. And don't just spring it on them like, oh, here I am wearing a blouse. And they'll freak out. Or, the, or, they'll, or they won't freak out, but they'll silently have this big exclamation point and question mark in their heads. And then prepare them also for, give them a narrative of like, how do they tell others about you? Um, I think I handled this really well because uh, at one point I was picking up my daughter at Boys and Girls Club and she was playing with a girl and I stood next to her. This is early my transition. I stood next to her and said, hey, Emma. And she turns to her friend and she's like, oh, by the way, this is my mom. She used to be my dad, but she's trans. So she transitioned and she's now a woman. So she's my mom. Anyway, bye. <laughs> and... <laughs> I was That's laughing. how literal kids are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got in the car. I'm like, you realize you just dumped a load of info. <laughs> 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 so we've talked about it. You know, so that's another thing. I always believe in communicating more rather than less. Um, but prepare them for the potential bullying. Have them have responses. Um, have them have good comebacks, good zingers for whatever potential bullying might come along. Okay, you just got to throw one or two out here. <laughs> well one that i really like from Stephen fry because this is actually not about being trans but it's about being gay if my when my son started experimenting bullying at in high school somebody called him a cocksucker and because of the fact that he had watched the Stephen fry video i showed him he turned around and he said and a good one so that should be a lot and um my my daughter at one point told the kid at school that uh her second mom is more woman than any woman on TV is. And I was so impressed. I was like, that, that's, so they, they, just hold your ground. You know, I don't, they, one of the key things I teach is don't internalize the insults like they're bad things. Like one thing that I think we heard a lot is um, at one point somebody referred to me, um, to my son as, um, oh, so your father's a faggot. And my son turned to him and very seriously said, well, actually, the correct insult is tranny. So get your insults correct before you talk to me. And I thought that was beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) So sort of, you know, to kind of take this to the other side, right? Like if you are a family member, if you're like a close friend or, you know, maybe it's your, your dad or your mom or maybe it's your brother or your sister, how can... Can folks do like a better job supporting and showing love, you know, to 
their loved one who's transitioning? Like, what can they do to kind of stand up and 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 be a good support person? These are great questions, and I am tempted. I, I hear myself slipping into this pedantic mode, so I want to take it down a notch and say, you know, I just know what I know from an experience, and I'm not uh, the end-all, be-all. There's a lot of good advice on YouTube, and there's a lot of good advice coming from gender therapists, so get yourself a gender therapist and ask them important questions too. But what I would say, the most important thing that I would say, if you're the mother of a trans kid, if you're the sister of a trans boy, if you're uh, aunt, auntie, or, or spouse, although that's more laden. But the first thing I'm going to do is this is not happening to you. And this is not your story. Don't take the center. Don't talk about what you're going through because you're not going through shit. They are going through something. This is a really troubled analogy in the same way that we, you know, like when we did the analogy with polyamory, this is one that potentially might get me in trouble. But in cancer survivor language, there's the concept of concentric circles of care. Ring theory. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so get yourself concentric circles of care. If you're the parent of a trans kid, you're going to be the caregiver for the kid going through that. And the kid is not going to be your support. The kid is not going to be your anchor. They can't. So get yourself a support group. Get yourself some friends who are going to be staunch friends and they're going to be the people holding you as you hold the kid. If you're a spouse of a person in transition and you're going to take the deep dive and stay in the game, wow, that's going to be rough. Get yourself a circle of care that, that's going to support you through some journey. And I have to say, I don't know if I'm throwing uh, trans people under the bus, but I got to tell you, we become so damn self-centered. And I already kind of touched on this, this kind of like me-centered narrative. We have to, it happens to, to cancer survivors, once again, to belabor that analogy. We have to, it's a matter of life and death. So for at least a year or two years, sometimes maybe three or four, we are going to be a pain in the ass because we're going to make it all about us because we're going through something, I don't know, the words life-changing and the words life-saving seem small. It's, it, it's life-altering. I don't, I don't have the right language, but it, it's so big that we can barely contain it. And so we cannot focus on also being thinking about, well, how might this affect you? And that can wreck relationships. That's really hard for the spouse. That's really hard for the rest of the family who are like, you get a little bit. And, you know, the sibling of, of the kid in transition might feel left out, might feel like, well, it's all about Michelle right now. And what about me? You know, I go through shit too. Um, so you got to prepare for that. And it, it, it's a very similar narrative to what happens with illness. And that's a dangerous analogy too, because I'm not trying to imply that trans is an illness. But I think that what I'm trying to say is conveyed, which is you're going through a major life experience. And because of that, you're going to be a pain in the ass for people around you. It's the idea that, you know, the person who's kind of at the center of things, you know, needs to, you know, you brought up ring theory that there needs to be like a branch out sort of a thing. Exactly. Also, if you're the family member or invested in the well-being of, of a trans person, especially a trans person going actively through transition, 
I want to take a second to make a distinction, which is I am a very different person and I'm a very different stage. And therefore, therefore you can relate to me at a very different way now than the person that I was in 2013, 2014. Because I am very well grounded in my womanhood right now. And transition right now for me is like, yeah, sure, there's this other thing. There's like, there are medical procedures that I've just experienced that I'm going to experience, but it's not, it's not an agonizing plight right now. It's just like, mostly I feel, at least socially, I feel like I have it buttoned up. Um, but six years ago, four years ago, when I was in the thick of it, every day felt like a nightmare and like a hardship. So depending on where you catch trans women, and especially if you, if you catch them in like at the peak of transition, um, one thing that I will strongly recommend for, for people who are around this person is educate yourself. Watch the YouTube videos, read the books, um, consult psychologists and consult gender therapists and find out the right things to do. Don't, don't get defense, defensive if you misgendered her and then she's biting your head off. Yeah, she's going to bite your head off because that was hurtful. So just apologize and move on and chill, right? Don't make it into an argument. Oh, something I absolutely hate is this thing, which is I'm not going to say which person in my life did this because, yeah, I was my mother, whatever, fucking, I'm going to say it. <laughs> um, but so she would misgender me and I would say it's she, her. And then she would go, well, you have to be patient with me. Rome wasn't built in a day. I'm trying as hard as I can. It hasn't been that long and I'm still adjusting and you really have to give me. And I'm like, shut up. Like we could have had this minor hiccup where you misgendered me and I said she, her, and then you say sorry and you move on. And instead now it's this telenovela suddenly. So don't do that. <laughs> Don't assume that because you don't understand something and because it doesn't seem like a big deal to you, that it's not a big deal to them. In your efforts for being or finding commonality and empathizing, be careful with the analogies that you draw. I found it very recently. I've just gone through breast augmentation. And so quite often I would get comments that I really didn't need to hear. People are like, well, you don't really need breast surgery. You know, I mean, like a lot of women have small breasts and I'm like, it's not the same. So listen more than talking, I guess is what I'm saying. And um, what else? I think those are the bigger, the, the biggest ones. Get yourself informed and be an advocate. Something that's absolutely great. Oh my God, I love this so much is and again, it doesn't happen to me that much right now because I'm at a point, I'm at a different point in my transition, but something that's absolutely terrific is when somebody next to me misgenders me and I don't have to advocate for myself. I don't have to use my spoons. I don't have to make it about me and I don't have to be the one engaging in a confrontation. Somebody else got me. My BFF got me. My, my sibling got me. Somebody around me says to him, actually, Cassie's a girl and her pronouns are she, her, so please correct yourself. And I don't have to do the work. Gosh, the, having people in your life like that is so useful and so healing. 
so that you know i i think that those things just kind of be prepared to 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 stand in the line of fire for somebody if you really do say you care about them awesome well thank you that was really really helpful uh and i think really valuable information um, and we are, I think, going to go ahead and move into our speed round because we could keep talking to you all night uh, <laughs> because we're having a blast. But I think we're probably taxing the limits of, of what our listeners are used to listening to for us. So I'm as ready as I can be. Do I get a price, by the way? Uh, no, I, I, I don't think anybody's ever gotten a, 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 a prize. We've, but I'm, we've... Pretty sure, I'm pretty sure to win, right? Because I'm not competing with anybody. There you go. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean by competing. I mean, we have had people like, I'm going to be the one who gets through this quicker than everybody else. So I guess it could be competitive if you wanted it to. We've had a few people who have been like that, who yeah. are like, I'm going to get through this. So the idea is to try to get through the questions in 60 seconds. So like the first thing that comes to mind, really quick answers. Um, if you don't make it, it's okay. There is no... Uh, Penalty? B- penalty or buzzers. We did start doing the uh, Jeopardy song for somebody at one point because they were taking so long. So long. Um, but yeah, so let's let's dive in. All right. So first question, what is something you're not very good at? I'm very disorganized and I have the memory of Dory the fish. So it's really <laughs> hard for me to keep track of things. <laughs> the best piece of relationship advice you've ever received? Don't do too many things at the same time. If you're going to bring up an issue, bring it up and then let it sit and don't sideswipe the person with an expected argument immediately. Give it a rest and let the person marinate in it and then have the discussion six hours later or tomorrow. Awesome. What are three things you couldn't live without? Oh, my kids, for sure. I think that's it. And well, um, my ability to write and my ability to speak and convey my stories, uh, I think that's really, um, well, and lots and lots and lots of money. (laughs) Okay, you came up with three. So what turns you on? Oh, so many things. Kindness turns me on, makes me feel safe. Somebody who is good at acknowledging with good compliments. And I'm not talking about compliments like you have a good ass because I did that, that's whatever genetics. But if somebody is thoughtful enough to see something about myself and then to address, to acknowledge the core of me in a way, then yeah, that that's kind of, if somebody really hits something that's very center and central and core to me and acknowledges it, like you're really good at this, then yeah, that's the easiest way to get my panties off. tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on oh my god um that's that's a really hard one the world is round (laughs) (laughs) okay a book you would recommend for our listeners (laughs) um definitely brené's brené brown's the the power of uh vulnerability that that book was kind of life-changing for me because I had learned all about keeping myself shielded and and hidden. And um, Brene Brown came to me at a time in my life where I really could could use what she had to say, which is just show your authentic self and damn the torpedoes and be very open and vulnerable. And I can't thank thank her enough. I absolutely love Brene Brown. What is your biggest fear? Ridicule, which may transition a little bit of a bitch. (laughs) 
I could imagine. What is the most adventurous thing you've ever done? This could be a sexual thing or non-sexual thing, but the most adventurous thing you've ever done. Oh, gosh. Um, interestingly enough, I have sexual stories, but they don't feel as adventurous. Um, I think the most adventurous thing that I've ever done was uh, move my whole family to Argentina, which is where I was born. And we lived there for four years and we ran a business. And then... Uh, and then coming back, and that was, I, I wouldn't do it again. That was insane. What was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> Who is your movie or TV famous person crush? I, either Tom Selleck or Ryan Gosling, depending on how much I want to date myself. <laughs> okay. What's something you're working on right now that you would like our listeners to know about? Um, well, the Empowered Trans Woman keeps growing as a project. And um, also, I was recently approached by um, Eleanor from Dance Naked Productions here in Portland, and she wants to help me produce a one-woman show, which I'm going to be putting on in Portland, in Vancouver, and then we're going to take it to Seattle, and then we're going to take it to Vancouver in Canada. And I'm really excited about that. So is there currently a place that people can go to find out information about that or it's still too early in the process? This is too early in the process, but everything that, that's going to be my next projects is going to be on CassieBrider.com. So if, if somebody or if somebody just connects with me on Facebook, they're going to be really uh, keeping track of me. I have a, both a professional uh, Facebook uh, and a personal timeline, and that's one of the best ways to keep an eye on me. Awesome. And we'll connect, we'll uh, link to... All of those in the show notes. So it'll be a touchofflavor.com. People can go there and find your links and to your profiles and your, uh, you know, to your uh, website. And is the Empowered Woman Project, is that home on your website or does that have a separate? There, it has, it's a separate, uh, it's a separate entity and that's empoweredtranswoman.com. Okay. We'll uh, do that as well. So we'll put that in too. Oh, so that's great. Thank you. You have been a blast to talk to. I'm so glad. This was really fun. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF1. 